0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama.
1: We're going to witness once again one woman's extraordinary and emotionally fraught quest to solve the mystery of her own birth. She's on the hunt for a biological mother who gave her up for adoption. And we're with her every step of the way as she unearths the clues that lead to a surprising, dramatic, and life-changing conclusion for our series, Face to Face. <laughs> A baby girl born on a fall day in Ohio. But for that little girl now grown up, so much about herself is still a mystery.
2: Who I looked like, about where I got my giant teeth, (laughs) about why I was different than my sister or my mom and dad. Teresa Stenson
1: was adopted, and for the entirety of her life, her past has been sealed. But just last March, a celebration, both historic and humbling. Teresa joined hundreds of Ohio adoptees who, for the first time, could request their birth certificates. A single piece of paper that could bring them face to face with the parents who gave them life.
2: I mean, just millions of questions. Where did I come from? Did my birth mother ever think about me?
1: Ever think about you, or ever want you?
2: Both. When my mom said to me, Your birth mother loved you so much that she gave you away so that we could take care of you. Did you buy that? No absolutely not and that was innate for me even as a young child i think i was smart enough that that didn't make sense and no matter what um i always thought poorly of myself so i was never pretty enough never talented enough never enough
1: because in your mind your mama didn't want you
2: right she didn't want me
1: she says it wasn't until recently she even considered her mother might also be looking for her you hadn't considered that before
2: never Never, because for some reason, it was easier for me to believe that I wasn't good enough. It would almost be too painful for me to hope, to have that hope, that, gosh, she might be out there looking for me.
1: (laughs) Teresa applies for a birth certificate and waits for that letter in the mail.
2: Thank you very much.
1: This is the first step on a journey 47 years in the making. Meanwhile, her sister Vanessa starts looking for her sister's birth mother. And finds a post on an adoption registry website.
2: And I thought, oh, I'll type in trust birth date. And then on that registry was her birth mother's name and that she had registered in 2001. There was more.
1: Teresa's possible birth mother attended Lake High School more than 40 years ago. It's the same school her son attends now.
2: I think this is where we go.
1: Hoping to find strength in the story of fellow adoptees, Teresa attends a support group meeting hosted by the Adoption Network Cleveland.
2: Gosh, I didn't think I would cry to do this. Um, uh, sorry.
1: <laughs> it's here where she chooses to open her birth certificate. There's no turning back.
2: Um, I'm opening this and I think I already know some things that are in here. But there's some questions that I have that I hope will be answered by reading it. Okay, so people were um, saying what they were named. My birth mother gave me the same name as my adoptive parents, and my adoptive parents did not know what my birth mother had named me. (laughs) How do you explain that? Honestly, because I'm a person of faith and I think this is totally God's plan, I feel like it's a little wink from him and he's saying, listen, you know, I have a plan for your life and I'm just gonna show you, this has been your name all along. You are who I meant you to be. It confirmed that I uh, knew my birth mother's name, which is great. It's proof that I'm real. And that name (laughs)
1: led to a real phone number. Mm, Here we go. The next day, Teresa is ready to make the call.
2: My heart is racing.
1: Reach out to a stranger and hear her birth mother's voice for the first time.
2: Hi, Chris, how are you? I was wondering if I could talk to you for just a moment. I didn't know if you were aware, but they just opened adoption records in Ohio. Um, I actually just opened my birth certificate yesterday, and the birth mother on um, on my birth records was Christine Lewis, and I'm pretty sure that I'm the person that you've been looking for for a while.
1: On the other end of the line is Teresa's birth mother, Chris Shirley. She had been waiting for this phone call for 47 years. You're kidding me.
0: I'm not kidding. Kathy could be my daughter. Yeah. <gasps> it could be my daughter. that's my daughter. I know.
1: My daughter. <laughs> well, I just want you to know that I didn't ever want to give you up.
0: Well whether you watch only one or a thousand of these videos, I don't think they ever get old as you watch a reunion, really a reconciliation taking place between two family members after many years. In this case, for Teresa and her mom, over 47 years have passed. That's a lot of time for questions to form and lies to believe. And as you watch this story unfold, this reconciliation happen, you can't help but get swept up into the emotion of it all. And as a result, you're left maybe feeling humbled, but on top of that, um, having a few tears well up within your eyes. And, And I don't know if you caught it, but one of the most amazing parts of Teresa's story is when she opens up that birth certificate and she realizes that her biological mother and her adoptive parents have given her the exact same name and they've knew nothing about it. And so the reporter asked, asked Teresa about it. And her response was this, well, I'm a person of faith and I just believe it was totally God's plan. This morning, as we close out our our series on Genesis, we come to a scene in the life of Joseph Joseph, that is very similar to the story that we just watched. No, Joseph was not given up for an, an adoption, but rather he was betrayed and sold into slavery by his brothers. However, it is a story of a family being reconciled after over 20 years. That's a lot of time for Joseph to have many questions form in his mind and for him to wrestle with all the hurt. But through it all, what we see Joseph saying is one just like Teresa, all of this is totally God's plan. Can I ask you though, how can they say that? After all the hurt, after so many years, Well, they can say it because they trust in God's sovereignty. Their view of God is very big. And hopefully this morning, that is what we are going to see, that wherever we are and whatever we're walking through, that my view of God's sovereignty, it has to be bigger. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up with me to the book of Genesis, where we will be looking at chapters 43 through 45. And don't worry, we're not going to be reading all of them or you will definitely miss lunch. And so in order to get through all these chapters, we're going to be flying at 30,000 feet for most of the morning. And then occasionally we're going to drop down into a particular passage and zoom in to make sure we see what's going on. In order for us to understand, though, where we are headed, I think it's important that we go all the way back to the runway that we started out on a couple of weeks ago when we started looking at the life of Joseph. As you recall, Joseph was his father, Jacob's most loved and favored son. And because of this, his other brothers hated him. But on on top of that, God gave Joseph a couple of dreams. And instead of Joseph keeping them to himself and letting them play out, he was stupid enough to go ahead and tell his brothers the dreams. Dreams that would reveal that one day he would rule over them and they would bow down to him. As you can imagine, this enraged his brothers even more. And so then one day, while they were out, they look up and they see Joseph headed towards them. And so they quickly devise a plan that they were going to kill him and leave him in a pit. But instead of going through with the plan, they look up and they see a, a caravan of merchants headed to Egypt. And so they sell Joseph to these merchants for a couple of silver coins. So Joseph is ends up in Egypt, and through a series of events, he winds up in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has just had a dream. No one knows the meaning of the dream, and Joseph can tell him the meaning of it. And so he says, listen, Pharaoh, you need to understand, here's what your dream means. There's going to be seven years of an abundance in the land. But right after that, there is going to be seven years of a great famine. And so you need to make sure that you appoint someone that will rule over all the land and make sure that you're ready. Well, Pharaoh, knowing no one wiser than Joseph, um, he places Joseph as the ruler over the land. And so the seven years of abundance, they come and they go and Joseph does exactly what he should do. He stores up plenty and then the famine sets in. And as you know, a famine will take a toll on the land and food starts running low, especially over in Jacob's place where he lived many, many, many miles away from Egypt. And so Jacob, hearing that Egypt has grain, he sends his sons to Egypt to go and purchase grain. And they quickly go and they wind up in front of Joseph, not knowing who he is. Joseph, though, recognizes who they are. They are his brothers but instead of revealing himself to them, he decides to put them through a series of tests. He he wants to see if they are the same old brothers that are hateful and jealous like they were 20 years ago or has their hearts really changed. And so the first thing he does is he accuses them of, of being spies, And then he says, okay, if you're not a spy, uh, to prove it, I'm going to keep one of your brothers, Simeon, here with me. I'm going to throw him in prison, and you won't get him back, and you won't see me again until you return with your youngest brother. Well, hearing this, they set out, and they head back home, imagine not even knowing how they're going to explain this to their dad. And then afternoon gives way to evening, and they make camp, and they open up their sacks, and there is the money. That, they were, that they'd used to purchase the grain. They start thinking, surely God is repaying us for the evil that we did to Joseph so many years ago. And consumed with guilt, they make it back home. However, what we're about to see is guilt is about to be overcome with grace and mercy. Well, sometime, maybe even several months has passed since they've returned from their first trip as we come to chapter 43, We see that the famine is still severe in the land and the grain, they're running low on food at Jacob's ranch again. And so Jacob is forced with a decision to meet the demands of the man in Egypt and send his most loved son, Benjamin, back with his other sons or to face starvation. But instead of Jacob sending his sons back quickly, like he did the first time, this time he delays Matter of fact, he even blames his sons for what has happened to his family. Jacob is gripped in fear. But then Judah, one of the brothers steps in and says, hey, dad, I get what you're wrestling with. But listen, we're not going back to Egypt unless you give us Benjamin. And, and I understand it. And so you can trust me with Benjamin. And if anything happens to him, I will bear the weight for the rest of my life. Jacob, hearing this, he caves, and so he sends his most loved son, Benjamin, back with his other sons to Egypt. And this is where we pick up in the story, verse 11 of chapter 43. Then their father Israel said to them, "'If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds.' Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. It's in these verses that we see Jacob being the patriarch again and walking by faith rather than fear. And so the first thing he does is come up with a plan of appeasement and he puts together what we might call a a huge gift basket and he fills it with lavish things that aren't found in Egypt. And then he places also in this gift basket, the money that they're going to use to buy the grain that they need, but also the money that came back from the previous trip, just in case it is an oversight. And then right before they set out in the morning, Jacob prays and asks God to grant his son's mercy. Did you know that this is the first time that the word mercy actually appears in the Bible? And appropriately, it comes in the form of a prayer. Jacob understands that the outcome is now all in God's hands. It's up to him. And whether or not his sons realize it, what we see through these next three chapters is over and over again, God answering this prayer. Now back to the story. With their bags packed after the prayer, They head out to Egypt. There's no time to delay. They've got to get Simeon. They've got to get their food. And on top of that, as they're coming closer to the town, you can imagine the fear that's running through their mind. Are we going to be accused of something again? Are we going to be thrown into prison because of this extra money? And so as they walk in, maybe to the building that they're about to purchase grain, where Joseph is, Joseph looks up and he sees them, probably off in the distance before they get up to him. And he sees that Benjamin is with him. And so he tells his steward, who's in on the whole thing, hey, listen, go ahead and and grab my brothers and take them to my house and prepare a feast because at lunch, we are gonna eat and we are gonna eat well. And so the brothers, the steward does exactly that and he takes the brothers to Joseph's house. And immediately when they get there, the brothers are overcome with fear. And they begin to imagine the worst. They start thinking, oh no, we're going to be attacked. We're going to be robbed, maybe even enslaved for all this extra money that we've brought back with us. I mean, you can feel the brothers sweating this thing out and wondering what is going to happen next. Are we going to be enslaved? Are we going to get off the hook? What's going to happen? And so with fear driving them, they take matters into their own hands and they seek out the steward. And they began to tell him all that had happened on the previous trip. But to their surprise, the steward says something that will ease their anxiousness. Let's see what he says in verse 23 of chapter 43. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and had given them water and they had washed their feet, and when they had had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat their bread here. And I want us to stop to make sure we understand what's going on. When the the brothers had seen the steward's response, his action, restoring Simeon, how he fed their donkeys and washed their feet. When they had heard the steward's response, he refers to the brother's God, the God of their fathers. And he also says shalom or peace. Immediately the brothers would have known this is going to be a peaceful event at their brother Joseph's house. Verse 26. When Joseph came home they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, "Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive?" They said, "Your servant our father is well; he is still alive." And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves a second fulfilling of Joseph's dream. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, "Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me?" God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion, or as the Hebrew would say, his mercy grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. You cannot help but get swept up into the emotion of it all and imagine what Joseph must be going through when he looks up, he walks in and he sees his brother Benjamin there. Here is his full blood brother that he hasn't seen in over 20 years. And you can't help but imagine the thoughts that are running through Joseph's mind at this moment. Ones of of great sorrow, but ones of of, of also maybe just the the, uh, joy and sorrow that are running through him. And as a result, he can't contain it. And so tears begin to well up within his eyes. And so he runs out of the room and he goes into his bedroom and he falls on his bed because it's just too great to contain and he weeps. And after he cries it out a little bit, he gets himself together and he rejoins his brothers and he orders for the food to be served. And they ate like kings. And I just picture that they ate, you know, fillets. All right. And also asparagus and fried okra and macaroni and cheese, things that are heart healthy. Okay. Good for the heart. Um, and maybe we've got to add salad and all that kind of stuff. But then to top it off, cream brulee. Can we just praise him for some cream brulee? I, I need some more of that in my life. And so I, this is the, what is going on. He's taking, Joseph is taking the food from his table and putting it on his brother's table. But for Benjamin, he's giving five times the amount. So you imagine Joseph's little dude getting five filets, getting five helpings of mashed potatoes, five things of cream brulee. And really this is a small test. Joseph wants to see how will his brothers, res- will re- how will they respond? Will they respond in jealousy or will they just let it go? And this doesn't bother the brothers at all. Something has happened. There has been a heart change that is going on. And what we see is Jacob's prayer for mercy has been answered. Mercy and grace have expelled the fear that the brothers came into Egypt with They didn't earn their brother's favor. They didn't deserve his kindness, yet Joseph lavishes it upon them anyways. And this is where we have to stop and just say, while Joseph was a great man, he is a picture of someone that is much greater, whose name is Jesus. And just like his brother's You and I have over and over again have sinned against a holy and righteous, good God. And we don't deserve any of his kindness, any of his mercies, any of his blessings at all. Actually, what we deserve is eternal separation from him forever. But God being rich in his love, sent his one and only son, Jesus, who became sin for us. And if we surrender to him and make him our Lord, we can be reconciled back to him. And as a result, what we see is we experience grace upon grace. And as Lamentations 3 says, his mercies are made new for us every morning. And then if we would flip into Revelations, we would see one day when all is said and done, his children will be seated at the wedding feast with the Lamb of God. Yes, Jesus is greater. And then with the food and drinks flowing, lunch gave way to the evening, and then comes the test. Let's look at chapter 44, verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill them in sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, oh, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Joseph is going to test them with silver, just like his brothers sold him into slavery for silver many years ago. The test is now in session. How will the brothers will, how will they respond? Will they pass the test? Well, early the next day, the brothers get everything together and they set out. And you can just picture the conversation that's happening as they get outside of the city. They're talking about the food that they ate, the favor that they experienced. And they can't wait to tell their dad what happened until they start hearing some commotion going behind them. And they look back and they see here comes the steward and maybe his entourage. And the steward, when he gets up to him and he, he accuses them of stealing the silver cup, just like Joseph told him to. And and, and instead of just going along with it, they they give a plea. The brothers say, hey, listen, I think you got the wrong guys. Because if you'll recall, um, we brought the money back from the first trip. If we were robbers, why in the world would we ever bring back the money or even come back to Egypt in the first place? Pretty good argument if you ask me. But the brothers go on and they say, hey, look, Here's what will happen. If you find the silver cup in one of our sacks, you can go ahead and kill that brother and you can take the rest of us as your slave. Well, the steward though, he has other terms of his own. And he says, only the man that has the cup will become a servant. And so that's a much better proposal than the one that the brothers had just given. And so the steward starts going through and starts searching the bags and he starts from the oldest to the youngest. One after one, you can imagine as one bag turns up empty after another and he keeps working down the line, the brothers under their breath are saying, see, told you, you you got the wrong guy until they come to Joseph. I mean, until they come to Benjamin. And when he opens up Benjamin's sack, lo and behold, there is the silver cup. And instead of the brothers pointing the finger and going, man, I can't believe you, Benjamin, go ahead and take him. Immediately they rip their clothes in anguish for what has happened. And then they start packing up and they head back to Egypt. 20 years ago, these brothers would have taken the deal. They would have left Benjamin there. They would have been happy to. They would have rather had their freedom because after all, Benjamin would have been their father's favorite. So go ahead. You can have him. We would rather have our freedom, but not now. Something has changed and now it's time to plead their case. And so they rush into Joseph's home. Listen to what happens. 44 verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. This was an impossible fix. There's nothing that they can do except plead for mercy. And Joseph says, no, there is no deal. I'm only keeping Benjamin. The rest of you can go free. But Judah will not take no for an answer. He's not leaving Egypt without his brother, Benjamin. And so he, on behalf of his brothers, he humbles himself in front of Joseph and he places his life on his line and he pleads the case for Benjamin. And if we were to look in the following verses of 18 on through the rest of the chapter of 44, what we see is that in a nutshell, Judah is retelling the story of what brought them there in the first place. He starts with why they brought Benjamin to Egypt. And then he predicts what would happen to their father when he finds out that Benjamin is not with him. Jacob is gonna die. And then he willingly offers himself to be the substitute so his brother could go free. And doing so, Judah, not even knowing it, he he admits to the guilt of what they've done to to their brother, Joseph, many years ago. But he also confesses the love that he has for their father and also their brother, Benjamin. A transformation has taken place in the lives of the brothers. And now Joseph knows it. And it's so true of us as well. God doesn't just save us. And just leave us there. No, but he continually transforms us, which means he also uses every test, every trial, every hardship, even the evil that we will face. He uses it to transform us more into his likeness and for our view of who he is and how he's working our plan in and through us to accomplish his purpose for it to expand and for our minds to be blown. And so they, brothers, they all passed the test. Their hearts have been changed. After hearing this plea, Joseph responds a second time. Look at 45 verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, make everyone go out from me. So when no one stayed with him, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, remember? And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph could not bear it any longer after he hears Judas' plea. And so he tells them, look, I'm Joseph but don't beat yourself up. Don't be angry. Don't point your finger because I need to tell you something that God has shown me over these many years. Look back with me at the beginning of verse eight because it's so powerful what he says. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Let me ask you, how could Joseph say this? Here was a man that was betrayed by his brothers, his own blood. He was a man that was thrown into a pit it experienced extreme highs and extreme lows. He's thrown into prison. He's wrestled with the hurt. He's had so many questions form. He's missed out on so much of what his family has done over these 20 years. How can he say this? Not just once, but twice as we're about to soon see, well, here's how he has a God centered perspective over and over again, Joseph chose to have a God-centered perspective, a God viewpoint rather than a horizontal perspective that is all about self and self-pity and my hurt and how somebody's wronged me. And just like Joseph, no matter what you're walking through, you can have the same exact response if you have a God-centered perspective. You can say, yeah, this, this is God. That's doing this. It wasn't you. God somehow is working this, which means for you and I, our theology has to become greater than the weight of our emotions and memories. Our theology, our view of God, has to become greater than, than our memories and than our emotions, and that's huge, especially in our day and time, because we really like to put a lot of weight on our emotions and also on our memories, and so we'll even play back those memories over and over again. And somehow we have to be able to take those emotions, take those memories, and just lay them at the feet of Christ. Yeah, there's real hurt. We have a lot of questions. We we don't even understand why this is going on in our life. But somehow we have to say, God, you can have this. And I'm going to fix my eyes on you because somehow you're doing a work in this. And this is what happens to Joseph. This is why he's able to say, it wasn't you who sent me, but it was God. Joseph had right theology. He had experienced the mercy of God all throughout his life. But on top of that, he had surrendered to the sovereignty of God. He he, he knew that his all-powerful, in-control God was working his plan. And so it wasn't his brothers that had power over him, but rather it was his God working his plan in and through them. Remember what Joseph said? Hey, brothers, it wasn't you who sent me, and you need to know something. God used this plan to preserve life. He understood the plan. And it's a plan as you and I know that it never goes against his character, which means it's perfect and it's good. And it will always work out for our good and ultimately for his glory. And Joseph knew this as well. And that's why he was able to surrender his hurt and his mercies and he was able to walk by faith. And just like Joseph, this has to become our view as well. My view of God's sovereignty has to be bigger than my view of everyone else's power over me. At some point, we have to stop giving power to people that have no power over us in the first place. And at some point, we have to start seeing that God, who is all powerful and is working his plan through every single thing is accomplishing his will and his purpose through what I'm walking through. We have to let go of that power that people give to us. That means every hardship, every hurt, every evil, every sin that somebody commits against us, that all of a sudden we can ultimately say, no, somehow God is bringing this to accomplish his purpose. But let's just get real for a second. It's easy to stay in the horizontal perspective, right? Like, I can't believe how they hurt me. And we, we sit in there, we have self-pity. I uh, mean, we get angry, we get bitter. We, we don't wanna forgive at all. So we just stay there and maybe we even go, you know what, I wanna make that person pay for what they've done to me. And here's what happens when that's your attitude. You've actually given that person power over you that they never had. And here's what happens when you do that. Because when you do it, you actually will never experience victory. You'll never experience healing You'll never experience joy and you'll never experience how and see how God is working through this to accomplish his will in and through you. But the story goes on. Let's pick that back up in verse nine. Joseph says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I'll provide for you for there yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother, Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After this, his brothers talked with him. Joseph, long before this test, because he has a God-centered perspective, is able to forgive his brothers. There, there's no other way to justify or to explain the way that Joseph ha- has treated them unless that's happened in Joseph's life. But Joseph in this passage, not only is saying, I've forgiven you, but also we see him seeking out reconciliation. And that relationship is now restored as they weep over one another and they start talking freely. Well, word travels fast. And so Pharaoh gets wind of it and he knows that his brothers are in in town. And so he he rolls really the red carpet out and we see the Pharaoh kind of trumps what Joseph says. He says, Joseph, tell your brothers, go ahead and take the very best wagons. All right, load your family up in them and get them back here quickly. But on top of that, tell them your family can have the very best land. They can have the very best food. And they don't even have to worry about their possessions because they can have the very best possessions as well. And so Joseph hurries them out. This time as they leave the city, you can imagine, man, they are talking and it's a buzz as they're talking about our brother Joseph is alive. How in the world, what will our father say when he hears this news and it makes the journey pass? And then they get to the tent where their father lives and immediately they tell him the news. And when, when Joseph, when Jacob hears this, the first thing he does is he go, man, I can't believe this. It's too good to be true. Surely my brothers are playing this evil, or my sons are playing this evil trick on me. But then after he hears what his sons have to say, and then also how Joseph has sent this huge caravan, his spirit comes alive for he knows that now his son Joseph is alive. And I can just picture the moment. It doesn't tell us, but maybe, maybe um, Jacob, he falls on his knees and he begins to weep. He, he began, after all these years, his, his son is still alive. And maybe he goes and grabs his sons and hugs and kisses them. And he's jumping up and down for a second. He runs in, grabs his things and they hurry to Egypt. And if we were to continue to flip through the pages of Genesis, what we see is that Joseph and his family, they reunite and they live happily for 17 years until Jacob dies. And when that happens, the the brothers start wrestling with their guilt again. And they think now Joseph is gonna get even with us. And so they go to Joseph to plead for mercy again. Look at what Joseph says though in verse 50, 19 through 20. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so here we see after 17 years, Joseph still has a God-centered perspective. He has right theology. And what we learn from what he says in this moment is that my view of God's sovereignty has to be bigger than my view of everyone else's sin against me. But again, if we're honest, what happens is a lot of times we want to sit with a horizontal perspective and look at life through that lens. And when we do that, what happens is we see first the sin of, of, of that person that they've committed against me first. And then maybe way off in the distance, we see God's sovereignty. And as a result, what happens? The feelings, the bitterness, the, the hurt well up within us, we make, the, we make that person wanna pay. Maybe we even don't wanna trust God or take a step of, of faith. However, when we take a God-centered perspective and we look at it through the lens of God's sovereignty, here's what we see. We see God's sovereignty first, and then all of a sudden out in the distance, we see that person's sin against us, and there's a huge difference. So because it, instead of being bitter, and angry and wanting that person to pay and this self-pity and I can't trust anybody, I can't trust God and letting it define us. All of a sudden we're able to say, yeah, the hurt is real. This really does stink. I don't really even understand why I'm walking through this, but somehow because I know God is all powerful and he's in control and he's working his perfect plan and it's for my good, I, I can trust God through what I'm walking through. And, and because Joseph was able to do that, Because his view of God's sovereignty was bigger than his brother's sin against him. He was able to seek reconciliation and restoration. And that should be true of our lives as well. It it should be true that we don't just stop at forgiveness. And again, if we're honest, we're pretty good at forgiveness. But somehow we've missed the reconciliation part. Or maybe we just think, well, forgiveness is the reconciliation and and it isn't. And so a lot of times what happens is we just go, you know what, I'm going to forgive them. But you know what? I'm not going to talk to them again. Because man, that wound was, that, they really hurt me. So I'm just going to forget them. And we're just going to, yeah, we're kind of friends, but we never talk to each other. I don't know what type of friendship that is. But somehow we think, oh, well, that's okay. But what we see in the gospel is God's calling us not to just forgiveness, but then it moves to reconciliation. Why? Why? Because we see that's what our Savior has done for us. Luke 19.10, it says for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then when you are a new creation, because he seeked you out, he now calls us to actively pursue reconciliation in all of our relationships. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. He would say in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It has to move from just forgiveness to actually seeking reconciliation in those relationships. And so this morning, I don't know the hurt that you're walking through. I I don't know the memories that play over and over again in your mind and they're very real. I don't know, maybe what wells up within you is this desire to get even or to make them pay. Or maybe you just go, I don't care about that relationship anymore. It's, it's better that it's being broken. I don't understand what you're walking through, but what I do know for all of us is somehow we have to move from a horizontal focus and the self-pity and woe is me and and walking by fear rather than trusting God and move to a, a vertical view where we say, God, my view of your sovereignty over my life, it has to be bigger than anything that I'm walking through. And you see, here's what happens when we do that. All of a sudden we're able to say, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. Let me say it again. God works all things. He works through the mountain peaks. He works through the valleys. He works through the evil that you're going to face. He works through the sins that have been committed against you. He works through all things to the good of those who love him. So I'd ask you, do you believe it? Because you see, like I just walked through a couple months ago, my college pastor losing his son and through it all, I'm sitting there a couple months ago, hearing this testimony come out of, and he's going, "Uh, the hurt is real. The pain is real. We still have a lot of questions, but somehow we know God is absolutely working his plan. And here's how the gospel is going forth. So do you believe it that he's working all things for your good? so that it isn't about you anymore, but it's about the one who's loved you and died for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you God for your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. We thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness and your provision. Lord, and how you lavish those things upon us when we don't deserve it. There's not one minute where we deserve it. And so we say thank you. And God, this morning, I I pray that even in these next few moments, that maybe your spirit would continually search our hearts and you would cut away the the areas where maybe we've just allowed the world and the world's beliefs to become our beliefs. And that we've said, it's okay to sit in the hurt. It's okay to sit in the self-pity. It's okay to cause those things to stop us from trusting you or asking you to do God-sized things in our life. It's okay to have a broken relationship in our life. God, in that you would change our perspective from a very worldly focus to a God-centered perspective where our view of who you are and your sovereignty and how you're constantly in control and working your plan through every single moment of our lives that we're able to say somehow, even in the midst of the hurt, that you are working it for our good and for your glory. God, because I know we want to experience healing. God, we want to experience victory. And so God, maybe this morning, we just have to come and lay down our hurt. We may have to come down and lay down the, the bitterness or the desire to get even with somebody and fix our eyes upon you. And so God, my prayer this morning is you, that you would blow our minds up of how good, of how great, of how powerful you are and that every single thing happen, that happens, even when we can't even begin to explain it, that we would say, yes, it's God's plan and his ways are much higher than my ways. So I'm gonna trust that there's victory in that. So God, we, we just welcome you and, We ask that you would do a work in our hearts and our minds this morning.
1: Thanks for listening to The Brook.
0: If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.